have a theater background, you guys, so uh, Katie, my theater friend, helped me plan that one. <laughs> it's going to be a dramatic message. So, um, my husband Bobby and I, we helped start this church over five years ago, alongside the Williams family, Jonathan, and so many others, many of you who are still here. And as I wrote this message, and I thought about the way that I wanted to kind of close out this chapter of my life and say goodbye, this clip from The Wizard of Oz came to mind. Because starting a church and joining ministry and being on staff, uh, the journey that we've been through over the last five years definitely at times has felt as crazy as a journey through Oz. And so this morning, I just want to reflect a little bit on the journey of leadership that I've been through and the, the team that I've been with um, as those twists and turns of our, our journey have come at us and the people who have made it so very worthwhile. Whenever I'm in a season of change like this, I always turn to books and art and movies and so one of my favorite books is actually this memoir that I found in the sale rack of Barnes & Noble when I was in high school. It's called The Tender Bar by J.R. Moringer. And I've read it a few times now and always appreciated how differently it reads for me. So I picked it up a couple of weeks ago, hoping to find some words of comfort. And uh, to my sweet surprise, I did. In the first chapter, I found exactly what I needed to start my message this morning. So to set it up, this book is just the memoir of a boy who's growing up on Manhasset, Long Island with a single mother. And it's called The Tender Bar because in the absence of his father, his search for male role models leads him into the local bar where his uncle works, and he begins to idolize the hilarious array of characters who make up the bar community, okay? I think I love this book because, well, one, community is so incredibly important to this boy, just like it is to me, and then two, because he's a dreamer and he's sentimental and he holds on to relationships and conversations and memories with just, just as much love and adoration and passion as I do. I just feel like he articulates the way that my feelings and so a couple pages in, he's describing the softball game that his mother took him to when he was 12, where he first watched the men of the bar playing ball. And this is the paragraph that I want to quote. That softball game marked for me the beginning of many things, but particularly time. Memories before the softball game have a disjointed, fragmentary quality. After, memories move forward smartly, single file. Possibly I needed to find the bar one of the two organizing principles of my life before I could make a linear, coherent narrative of my life. I remember turning to the other organizing principle of my life, my mother, and telling her I wanted to watch the men forever. Organizing principles. I looked up the definition of principle and I have now decided that I am ditching the word values and I am embracing the idea of principles. Because a principle means a fundamental truth or a proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior, or for a chain of reasoning. And I can't say for certain what my future holds, but I am confident enough to preach this morning that the organizing principle of my life will be this community. That everything will exist in my memory before and after. Because before I committed to building this community in the fall of 2011, I was a hot mess, as Facebook loves to keep reminding me. <laughs> I looked good. I came back from a year in California and I had this like hippie glow about me. I was in really good shape because I've been riding a bicycle everywhere. Ridiculous. And I was very much following my gut and putting all of my hope in this newly articulated version of my faith thanks to a great therapist and a whole lot of courage. And I can only explain that I felt called to come back to Brooklyn, which I preached on a couple of weeks ago. But lucky for me, I was searching for something in all of that. And lucky for me, I bumped into my very own softball team of people who love. Uh, Jonathan and I were talking a couple of weeks ago about how we were all searching for something around this time, all of us on staff, that he and his wife, Juby, they were grieving after the first church that they planted, Incarnation, failed after only about 18 months, 
They had relocated here from Philly with two really small kids to plant that church to make this huge risk. And so right at the end of that, when it didn't work out on the Upper West Side, Forefront hired them to start Brooklyn, which in hindsight is kind of insane, guys. <laughs> like when you think about it, to be sitting in that kind of failure and grief and then to, to be willing to say, let's do it all again, kind of, a, I mean, the Williams family is kind of crazy, right? But aren't we also glad that they are? And then I think about Sarah, Sarah Ann and Ben Grace and how they were just arriving to New York City from Australia, taking this huge, big, risky, adventurous thing to do as a married couple. And I can't imagine how differently their lives would have played out in New York if they hadn't been so willing to share their gifts on that first Sunday when they walked through the doors just visiting Forefront Manhattan. Bobby, my husband, was one of the first people to meet Ben. At the time, he was part of a group of about 30 or 40 leaders who were going to help start Brooklyn here. And so he went out with Ben for a beer and got to know him a little bit and came back to Jonathan and said, yes, he's the guy that you should hire for your worship director. And Ben was. He was the first one that Jonathan hired the start of assembling our little team. And then there was Mira, who didn't join our staff until a couple of years ago. She's our, our family ministry director now. She's on vacation. But at this time, in 2011, she was a new mom, a new wife, and she was new to this country. She had moved to bed from Hong Kong when she married her husband, Mike. And when I think of all the change that she faced in that phase of her life, I am just in awe of who she is. I already knew Mira was a strong mother and a strong woman, but wow. I think about the changes that I have ahead of me moving from here to Indianapolis, and it's just nothing compared to what Mira faced. And I think, again, about the first time I heard about the Joyner family, it was from Bobby. He and I were just dating at the time, but Mike had invited him to come over to put together his grill, that grill that has served so many of us over the years. And he told me about their sweet daughter, Michaela, and their new baby, Maya, and this incredible house they have where they've hosted so many people over the years and, and welcomed us all in. They are truly the epitome of hospitality. I'm in awe sometimes when I sit and I think through these things, and I think through the people who walked through our doors in the morning, the, the Google searches that you did in order to get here, the invites that you got from your friends, the willingness that you had to say yes to stepping into community. And I'm just in awe of how God orchestrates life, how people and opportunities are placed in our path for such a time as this, as the book of Esther would say. Esther was the first sermon that I ever preached back in 2014. So I went back to look at it. Uh, just this past week, and it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. Not, it was not too bad, actually. I was pleasantly surprised by that. But I was also encouraged by the reminder of hope and possibility of living a life in line with God. We have no idea what challenges and adventures lay ahead, or how we'll be used to ask how we'll be asked to use our experiences, our gifts, and our time to serve others and to participate in a larger story. We never know what we're actually saying yes to when we say yes to God. Our staff certainly had no idea what we were saying yes to when we each individually, from all these different places, agreed to commit so much of ourselves to building this church. And I got nostalgic late one night, like a month ago, right after I told them all that I was leaving, and I started forwarding them all a bunch of emails from our early days. And one of them was an email that I got from Jonathan on December 16, 2011, which is a day that will live into me. Because if you don't know this, I've told this story many times, but that's the day of the Christmas party where I met my husband. And uh, so Jonathan sent this email because he realized that day that I wasn't on the contact list. And so maybe I hadn't heard about the get-together because this was before we were at church, a full year before. So we weren't having parties yet. We were having get-togethers and gatherings, right? 
And um, he sent me this email saying, oh my gosh, uh, I want to invite you. I know it's super last minute, but join us if you can. And, and actually, I'd heard about it. I was already planning on coming. But when I looked back at that in June, realized I almost didn't get invited to the Christmas party where I met my husband. And the reason I wanted to share that with you guys today is just to encourage you. Right? That's it. Yeah, I'm going to show you some of my emails. <laughs> um, I just wanted to encourage you guys today to invite people to things, for crying out loud. The movie in the park, the field day, Sunday morning worship, you have no idea how God is orchestrating things in other people's lives, in your life. And you have no idea how much change can come from one simple invite. As awkward as it might be, as last minute as it might feel, take the risk because you have no idea what people are searching for in their lives. Sometimes they don't even know. It can change someone's life completely to be invited into And so when we finally launched this community on September 23rd, 2012, a whole year later, which was, by the way, my 28th birthday, we launched on my birthday, I officially joined the staff one week later. My audition was uh, organizing Atlantic Antic, and I guess I passed the test because then I got hired as the part-time community director. Uh, And five days after we launched, Jonathan sent this email to the staff, which the staff at that time consisted of me, Ben, Jonathan, uh, Ashley Barnes, who was our intern turned kid stuff director who helped, who launched our kid stuff program, and Sean Willis, the amazing Sean Willis, who was our AV guy and who has done pretty much everything for us over the years, and we were so glad to have him with us. Uh, this is what Jonathan wrote five days after we started. He said, I wanted to write a quick note saying a couple of things. It was funny sad to look at all of us today at storage. We look beat. We're working at an ungodly pace right now, and it's crazy. Realistically, it's going to be this way for the next few weeks until our storage situation is figured out. In the meantime, it's just going to be crazy. Add in our fundraising, families, and schoolwork, and you get the picture. In the midst of all this, I'm really amazed by all of you. And then he went on to write a couple of words of encouragement to each one of us, which is one of the things that he does so beautifully. Ungodly pace. That was the line that that everybody wrote back to because we were, were wondering when exactly that day is going to come when we're going to stop working at an ungodly pace. Because the truth is, it didn't end after just a couple of weeks. That pace has really kept going this entire time. The journey that we've been on over the last five years has been exhausting and ridiculous and emotional and messy. Living life in community and loving people is a really difficult thing to do. It's really hard sometimes. It's also really difficult. And every time that we think we've settled into a rhythm, some life-changing thing happens that just throws us completely off again. In the first six months alone, just for an example, we worked six days a week because we had to rent a van, fill it up. We rented a van on Fridays, filled it up with supplies from a storage unit in Brooklyn Heights, and then we dropped it off at a parking lot here by the roulette. On Sunday morning, we unloaded it, did church, then reloaded it, which we were not good at doing church yet at that point. And then we had to take it back to the storage unit and drive the van all the way back up to the rental place on the Upper West Side. It was so dumb. And some of you, <laughs> Some of you helped us with it. Thank God for you. I don't really know how we're all still friends. Actually, we, we kicked Jonathan out at one point and told him he wasn't allowed to come anymore because he was difficult, <laughs> so, to say the least. <laughs> oh, but amidst all of that, we also had a hurricane hit our city. Jonathan's dad became a girl, and we had a relationship scandal happen amongst some of our core leaders. That was the first six months. And we did not get our storage situation figured out in just a couple of weeks. We got it figured out six months later, in February. And that was when we we bought that shining white beauty of a van. I don't know if you guys have noticed it. Sitting outside every Sunday, she's called Mrs. Robinson because she's old and sexy. 
she got tagged in front of Ben's place in Brooklyn Heights. <laughs> and uh, Mrs. Robinson came with most of her dents and digs, but the side door did used to open until one Sunday when Jonathan didn't listen to me and ran to the wall of the parking garage, and he's refused to drive the van ever since. But we were elated when we bought that lemon of a vehicle. My poor husband got suckered in once again to being on the insurance, and he was included in the thread of emails about it all. It's a good one. He said, this thing has AT written all over it. Dibs on being Mr. T. Other suggestions may include, but are not limited to, bullhorns mounted on the grill, crushed velvet interior, hot box prayer meetings, a family picture of the Williams wrapped around the outside. <laughs> I think we should some of our why campaign money to fulfill some of these goals. <laughs> that first year, needless to say, was a ridiculous ride that we were having in time. We had things being thrown at us as young leaders that we had absolutely no idea how to handle. Spiritually, theologically, physically even, like for example, the hurricane. Our church collected about $90,000 in donations from around the country and I was in charge of distributing those funds in Brooklyn along with the rest of the team. Completely overwhelmed and exhausted by all the needs of people, I can remember calling Jonathan from my second job and, and saying, just tell me exactly what to say to this woman who keeps asking me to buy her furniture. I just can't, I can't keep buying it for it. I don't know how to say no. We had no idea how to handle emergency needs or how to take care of people throughout such a difficult season, but it was one of the best memories of my life at that time. My husband and I, we were dating at the time. We started knocking on the doors of a street in the neighborhood of Red Hook where families had lived on this one block across the street from the project for decades. There was one family that had three generations in the house with an autistic child, and I remember we were there so many weekends, one after another, bringing people from the community who we barely knew at that point, and we were hauling out wet furniture and ripping out walls, and they were giving us vodka shots to say thank you, and it was awesome. <laughs> and they had had five feet of water bend the back door of their apartment in half, basically, and upend their refrigerators. It was so overwhelming. And yet we were serving alongside people who later became our best friends, people who would be at our wedding, neighbors from the neighborhood and people who were here in our community, the Randalls, the Knowltons, the Bishops, the Joiners who lent us their car through the whole thing, Derek Chen who did so much, the Willises. I remember so many of you being there, and I have such fond memories of that time. I learned so much about what it means to be a community director, but a pastor was not something that I was meant to be yet. In our first year as staff, we had a lot of lessons about ministry. We had a lot of moments of pastoral care that we didn't understand how to really handle, or we weren't quite ready to handle, maybe. And one of our first visits to the hospital was uh, this perfect picture of that. Jen Ugolino, who has been serving on our leadership team, and she's been an elder in our church the last three years, she had her appendix removed uh, during that first year. So we were all going to go to the hospital and visit her, okay? So Jonathan, Ben, me, and Ashley all got into the car and drove over there. We were feeling really awkward and uh, nervous about it, so we were sort of acting like idiots and got lost trying to get into the hospital, couldn't figure it out, had to ask a lot of questions. We're all in the elevator cracking dumb jokes because we were just nervous. We finally got our act together. I remember Jen, Jen's so sweet. She has a sweet memory of it, but I just remember feeling incredibly self-conscious stood by her bed and chatted with her a little bit and then prayed for her. And on the way back out, we realized, Jonathan realized that he had <laughs> he had lost the parking ticket somewhere. So we had to go back and trace our steps and try to find it. And 45 minutes later, we paid $25 to get out of the lot. So why God thought that we were equipped to leave his church, I will never understand. 
But it's in moments like that that I am reminded of how we are shaped as people and as leaders. And we're in this lovely series called Ruth, which just fits so beautifully into these memories because it reminds me that every leader has to start somewhere. Yeah, exactly, Hudson. <laughs> For my grad school application, I had to write on vocation. For those of you guys that don't know, I'm, I'm leaving because I'm going to go on the seminary and that. And, um... So I had to write, it's so weird because I'm going from the pastoral of working with all of you guys for the last five years to now like sitting and analyzing and being theological. And so my brain's not ready for it yet. But I started to think about these things as I wrote my application and this quote is what I had to read on from Frederick Buechner. He wrote, whom shall I send is the pain of the world where people die. And if you're not careful, you may find yourself answering, send me. You may hear the voice say, go. For me, finding my vocation means feeling alive and passionate about the work that I do with the people that I do it with, and that allows me to live into my principles, right? A mentor used to tell me that luck is when preparation and opportunity meet, and I think there's something to be said about finding your calling in the same way. And perhaps it's luck, but perhaps it's also, as Buechner says, a voice that you're finally able to hear. For me, the voice in the back of my head that was pushing me towards ministry was one that I didn't want to listen to for more than a year. The idea of working for the church with a capital C, it seems ridiculous. I didn't know enough about the Bible or ministry. I honestly, I was embarrassed because what would my artsy liberal theater friends think? Most of them didn't even know that I went to church and I was afraid they would lump me in with all the other crazy Christians who made feel unloved and unwelcome. And still the voice Five years later, I am so proud to say that I am the associate pastor of this church. I'm proud because we're the only evangelical church in New York City who openly loves and affirms people of all orientations, genders, and backgrounds. I'm proud of the thousands of dollars that we have raised and given away to incredible nonprofits who partner with us in this just and generous vision of a better world. And I am proud and humbled by the many women and men who have had the opportunity to love and mentor as they've grown from younger individuals into strong, confident, faith-filled leaders that they are today. We have incredible leaders in our church. I now know that I'm a producer, an advocate, a community builder, and a pastor. I now know my vocation is to help people, and the bigness of that statement doesn't scare me like me. This role has taught me every week that I am much stronger than I thought, that when I have a partner by my side and a community supporting me, I am able to walk through the pain of this world and take others with me. I sat with Nina during chemo sessions. I listened to my friend Henry told me about her struggles with mental illness. I organized a baby shower for Adela and Brandon, my friends who lived in a homeless shelter. I cried with more than one friend as we mourned the loss of a miscarriage. And time and again, I find myself in situations and places where I feel vastly underequipped and baffled by how I got here, but I continue to say, so I'm in these hardest moments of life where I find the fullness of life in community. And the only way any of this has been possible at all is because of the team that has carried the weight along with me. Guys, that was part of my essay. That's why I got a scholarship. Wasn't that good? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so in the fall of 2015, moving along, a few of us on staff went to the open gathering in Minneapolis. This was before open starters, right? It was gatherings and get-togethers, not parties and conferences. It was just getting started, and we were going to find out if we wanted to be part of this whole thing. And it was a challenging week, but it was beautiful, too, because we found people who were on a similar faith journey with us. 
who were struggling to have a more just and generous theology, and we felt so welcomed and loved and supported. But at the end of that week, we got some really tough news. We learned that our friend and our community member, Victoria Judge, was approaching the end of her battle with breast cancer, and the realization slowly sunk in that we would go home to do our first funeral. Vicki and her husband, Kevin, Jonathan Judge's they were two of our first older people to join our church. <laughs> when we started, we were mostly kids in our 20s and 30s, and it was so exciting to have some parents come, older people who could bring some wisdom, some years of faith into the community, and they had such enthusiasm for our church. It was wonderful to have them around. We were all really invested in praying and supporting their family when they could get sick. You know, I told you guys about that first hospital visit to Jen, but this last time that we made a hospital visit to someone who was sick, it looked very different. We drove up together after that week in Minneapolis. Jonathan, Ben, me, and Judy came along. Reflecting on our week and on our church as we made the long drive up to the hospital in the Bronx. And we each took turns sitting next to Vicki and we chose some scripture to read. The family asked if we would do communion with them. And so I just remember falling into prayer and hearing Jonathan and Ben fall into the words alongside me. And I look back now and I think about what a culminating moment that was for us. I can only explain the feeling amongst us as a sense of peace, a maturity and understanding that we were going to do something really significant as a team. People who had been through a lot together and who finally understood what it meant to hold the presence of God for each other and for others. We didn't find out until we were at church together the next day that Vicki had passed away only a couple hours after we shared communion with her, and I consider it an honor and a privilege to have shared that moment with her. My friend and colleague Travis Eads over at Forefront Manhattan, he recently wrote this to his community. He wrote, every movement in history has happened because of people, not places or things. Jesus' followers faithfully walked with him into the unknown because of who they were walking with and they changed the world. I'm so grateful because I've gotten to walk alongside people who have always known that people are the most important thing. I'm not in a job where making money or selling a product or even casting vision is the bottom line. Loving people is the bottom line. And I'm so grateful to have been on this journey with a team of people who understand that so well. So here we go. Back to the Wizard of Oz. To Ben, the team man. The one who's always had the most heart. I've met a lot of selfish artists in my life, but Ben has always recognized that I needed some healing and I needed to do, I needed, okay, hold on, let me start that again. That sounds awful, like I was saying that Ben's selfish. Let me start over. <laughs> I've met a lot of selfish artists in my life and Ben recognized that I had some healing that I needed to do because of my experiences and my dismay with the theater industry that I was coming from. I can honestly say that my relationship with him has healed my relationship with the arts. I love him and worship with Ben. I basically told him every song I wanted to do today. <laughs> It's taken us a long time, but we know how to be in sync with each other and to have each other's backs. And one of my favorite memories is always going to be our Good Friday Facebook Live event that we put together really recently. We didn't even get to do a whole rehearsal. It was just me and Sarah and Robbie and Ben putting it all together in the moment, and it went so beautifully. Because that's what happens after five years. When you've worked with someone long enough to trust them and to really know each other, to hand over a piece of your work to another person and to know that they're just going to really crush it, is a beautiful gift, and I'm so grateful to have found that with him. 
kept what I was always looking for. But my greatest respect and love for Ben comes for how much he loves people. Because time and again, he understands that he's an incredibly talented musician, but that his calling in life is to love people first. And he's given up himself and his time and his talent to so many people over the years, some of which have failed his expectations, and that's been really difficult, but others of whom, so many more of whom, have thrived as people and as artists and as leaders because he knows how to invest in people and cast, cast vision for their lives and their gifts and to lead them into deeper maturity and support. And their stupid Mira is not here. <laughs> I remember interviewing Mira with Jonathan a couple of weeks ago and we both, weeks, a couple of years ago, and we both felt bad because we knew there were just no words to describe what a hard thing it is to be in in ministry and what she would be saying yes to if she said yes to this job. But, I mean, and it's true because we did our best to tell her, but she still yelled at us a couple years later because there just are no words. And I remember Mira took the job because she loved kids and she was so passionate about teaching them and raising up this new generation of children for the Lord. And quickly we realized that because of the hardships that she faced trying to find community in New York, she was also this incredible woman to pour into new mothers and families. I talked to a couple of moms who just raved about how incredible, how incredible and how generous and what an amazing woman she is. And I remember how much she struggled when we started to talk theologically about moving towards a more progressive understanding of the gospel. She didn't grow up in a culture or an environment that supported her faith, and so to move from something that you fought hard for in your youth and in your young adulthood and to embrace change and a new way of looking at things takes a whole lot of courage. And I think she slowly started to realize that her voice mattered to more than just the kids and families. That women of color and all the rest of us needed her to speak from her experiences. That her point of view made us all better. So I'm excited that she'll be teaching more. She'll be the senior woman on her staff because once I go, because I do believe she's being called to be that strong woman leader that I know she already is. Mira was never the cowardly lion. <laughs> A fierce lioness, yes, but I have loved watching her find her courage over the past couple years. And then there's Jonathan. The scarecrow was the first one to join Dorothy on her journey. He always had her back through all the crazy stuff that was thrown at them. When Bobby and I were first dating, the forefront held this pre-marriage counseling boot camp for engaged couples, and Jonathan's dad, who was still Paul at the time, he led a section of it where we took personality tests called the DISC test. And he told me that I had a profile that was one answer different from his son's. And he knew that I had just been hired to be his community director. And he also told me that one day I would probably think that I could do his job better than him. And at the time I thought, no, I don't want his job. <laughs> it might explain a few things over the years about our personalities though. Uh, in 2014, when Brian Mull, the senior and founding pastor of Forefront Manhattan, decided to step down, Jonathan took me and Ben out for a drink and asked our blessing to apply for the senior pastor role, which now in hindsight, we might all hesitate a little bit more on that decision, because we've been through a lot hitching our, our wagon to uh, Forefront Manhattan over the years, but at the same time, I'm absolutely certain that we would not be able to do the art today, that I would not be the face that I am, I would not be in the face that I am that we would not be the just and generous church that we are if we hadn't stepped into that <sighs> He's an exceptional team leader, an excellent teacher, and I hope we're going to be
when he got that promotion, I also got promoted into the associate pastor role. And in the summer of 2014, we had worked really hard to figure out our new leadership position. We both felt insecure, unsure of ourselves, and we bumped heads a lot. I'm the feelings person, he's the thinking person, so I cried a lot, we yelled at each other a lot, and we put in a lot of hard work to figure out how to communicate and work really well together. And this is why one of my favorite moments, the memories of our partnership, is always going to be an email he sent me here recently. I'm not going to share with you guys, but it was the week when I was coordinating the Y campaign and the She Is Called conference, and my babysitter had just quit, and I was still a new working mom. And I was overworked and overwhelmed, and sitting on my living room through the floor, bouncing the baby, and just trying to figure out how to get everything done. And then I got this email from my boss, and it just made me sit and smile. At first, I needed that. I knew it. The second, because it was a Jen email, not a Jonathan email. It said exactly what I needed to hear, exactly the way I needed to hear it. And it's the kind of thing that you can only write to someone after working together for five years and really caring about the person and knowing exactly how their mind works. And it just made me smile to think how grateful I am to have had that in my life. The Williams are the first people we tell when we have great news. They're the first people we've called when we have the worst We've been with them at their highest and lowest points, and they've been with us at ours. Of course, you little Lila, Jonathan's youngest daughter, yesterday at our going away party, and so close with her, and she, she asked me, why can't my daddy just teach you how to be a better pastor? Why do you have to leave? <laughs> uh, but honestly, what I said back to her was, So, there are not enough words to say all that I need or want to say to you, Scarecrow. So I think I'm just going to take a line from Dorothy's book and say, and I will say, that I think I'll make it So, if a principle is a fundamental truth or a proposition that serves as the foundation for a system of belief or behavior or for a chain of reasoning, then the reason that I call this community an organizing principle of my life is because the lessons that I have learned here, the people that I have met and been so humble to love and serve, is the foundation for everything else that I will do in my life going forward. Over the past five years, I've become a wife, a mother, pastor, and a church. And I'm leaving knowing that it's not the city that I will miss as much as it's the people. When my husband and I got married, we agreed that service and growth would be the two principles that we would live our lives by. I hope you notice how many times I referenced in starting this community. And I'm excited for the next chapter of our lives because we're going to keep doing what we're doing and everything that we do. Ways in which we serve and love and model that for our son. Always, always, this community will be a part of it. I didn't put any scripture in this message, so whatever. But, <laughs> you know. But there are a couple of verses that were in my mind as I was writing. And um, I wanted to just leave you guys with this sort of a, a thank you and a blessing. A thank you from me, a blessing from you to me that I hope will be a blessing back. And it's from Philippians 4, verses 79. And it reminds me of kind of the words that he's often said and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, 
terrible. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it in your place. May the God of peace.